Well, let's uh, get started here. Uh, welcome to the Cato Forum on Union Influence on Public Policy. I'm uh, Chris Edwards, Director of Taxation. I'm just going to give a few introductory remarks, and then I, uh, we can get to our superb panel today. Cato published a special uh, issue of Cato Journal a couple months ago. Uh, I think they might be uh, uh, available outside uh, under the uh, editorship of uh, Jim Dorn. And uh, the issue was so well received, uh, Jim thought we ought to have a, a forum to follow up on this uh, important issue. Now, I'm a, I'm a fiscal policy wonk. I'm the tax director here at uh, Cato. So I've, I've been interested in public sector union influence on uh, state and local government spending. Uh, of America's 20 million state and local government workers, about 40% of them are unionized uh, today, which is a much higher unionization rate than in the private sector. Now, what is important for public policy is that unionization in the states varies dramatically across the different states. So states like New York and California, about three-quarters of the public sector is unionized, whereas states such as Virginia and North Carolina essentially have non-unionized uh, government workforces. So this, this has a big uh, impact on policy. Uh, for one thing, the, the states that are heavily unionized, like California, have very high wages and compensation for their public sector workers. Uh, this is important because uh, public sector compensation uh, costs the American taxpayers over a trillion dollars a year. So this is a very important issue. And many states these days are having uh, problems with their, their pension plans for uh, public sector workers. Uh, many states like California have a, a gigantic uh, pension funding gaps. And the states that are, in, that are in the most trouble with their pension plans, again, tend to be the most unionized uh, states. Uh, unions push for not only for uh, greater compensation for themselves, but they also uh, push to increase government spending across the board. Um, so, for example, uh, you, can, uh, you can look at the uh, states that have the highest debt loads, again, places like California and New York. Uh, those states with the highest debt loads, again, tend to be the ones that have highest, the highest unionization in their, in their public sector workforces. Unions push for uh, greater spending on programs at all levels of government, including the federal government. Uh, so groups like the National Education Association, for example, have long lobbied for uh, increases in spending at all levels of government, which essentially is a self-serving uh, exercise because it would mean higher wages and benefits uh, for themselves. I noticed a very interesting uh, article in the Washington Post a couple months ago, 3,000 transit workers rally on Capitol Hill. Uh, this is interesting because the, uh, the federal government is a, is a giant spigot of money for uh, local uh, bus and uh, subway systems. Uh, what these folks were protesting on Capitol Hill was is that traditionally federal subsidies for local transit went for cities to, to buy new buses and to buy new metro trains and that sort of thing. These folks were uh, uh, lobbying in favor of federal money to local transit systems for their operating costs. So in other words, they were lobbying Capitol Hill to essentially provide more money to cities uh, to increase their own uh, wages and benefits. This is kind of interesting because, of course, uh, uh, you know, unions are not really known for their sort of defense of federalism and the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution. Uh, here they're lobbying the nation's capital. You know, bus drivers are lobbying the nation's capital essentially for um, uh, salary increases uh, for themselves. 
Uh, let me give you a quick, uh, a quick note on history, then I'll go uh, to, to our panel. Uh, the National Education Association's website uh, touts that in 1867, quote, it won its first major legislative victory when it successfully lobbied Congress to establish a federal department of education, unquote. That was 1867. Now, the Federal Department of Education actually only lasted a couple years, and then it was demoted to a federal office. But the, the NEA has been lobbying for greater education spending now for a century and a half, which is rather uh, remarkable. Uh, however, uh, back then, the NEA was really just a voluntary association. It was not a union. Uh, the big revolution in uh, public sector workforce happened in the 1960s. State after state uh, passed laws that either uh, mandated or allowed collective bargaining uh, in the public sector. And so today, you've got about three-quarters of the states that either mandate or allow collective bargaining in the public sector. And that, in turn, this monopoly unionism in the public sector in turn set the stage for today's uh, big money public sector uh, union lobbying, which our panelists uh, will talk about. Uh, so we're going to have uh, three panelists uh, today, which we're uh, really excited about. Uh, speaking first will be uh, Armand uh, Tiblow, who is president of AJ uh, Tiblow and Son, uh, and he's been uh, he's active in uh, all kinds of uh, interesting business ventures. Uh, but for our purpose today, he's written eight books on uh, labor relations policy. And so he's been thinking about this issue of labor unions and public policy for a very long time. Uh, uh, Armand has an MBA and a PhD from Wharton. Uh, up next will be John Samples, who is Cato's uh, director of the Center for Representative Government. He studies issues like campaign finance and other sort of political science uh, issues. He's an adjunct professor at John Hopkins. And his uh, most recent book is The Struggle to Limit Government, A Modern Political History. John has a PhD from Rutgers. Uh, and finally, uh, 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 before we get to the Q&A, we'll hear from uh, uh, John Fund, who's a longtime columnist uh, for the Wall Street Journal and former member, I think, of its editorial board. Uh, to me, John's columns are, are absolutely a must-read columns in the journal. They're extremely well-researched and well-informed for many years of uh, watching the political scene. Uh, John's also written uh, numerous books. Uh, most recently, uh, his, his uh, book, I think, published this year, was How the Obama Administration Threatens to Undermine our elections. Uh, and uh, so he'll uh, finish off the uh, panel. Then we'll do um, maybe uh, 15 minutes or so of Q&A, hopefully. Uh, and then after that, it'll be uh, upstairs for lunch uh, in the Winter Garden. So uh, with no further uh, ado, uh, let me uh, invite Armand to the panel, uh, the podium. Well, hi, folks. Uh, oh, glad you could all come today. In all likelihood, you don't know me from Adam. Uh, you may uh, be wondering why I'm here on the program with notables such as uh, John Samples and John Fund. Well, I have written about a dozen books or so and a number of journal articles on labor policy. And I'll do my best to give you fair, fair value for your money today. Uh, but just in case, oh, oh. I would like you to note, if I can get these things off my computer here that are in the way, <laughs> uh, just in case, I'd like you to note that uh, the free lunch doesn't start until after I'm done. So, uh, uh, all right. As an academic writer, I always tried to be objective 
and rational and tried to save conclusions for after I'd done the research and the analysis. But I've been there and done that. Among other things, I've already looked at all sides of the issue and concluded, for example, that there has never been any valid reason for courts to allow unions uniquely in all the world to be free from the consequences of violence and mob behavior, mob behavior when used in pursuit of their own economic ends. I concluded that the Davis-Bacon prevailing wage le legislation was and is little more than a union wage protection racket. I concluded that union practices of job targeting, salting, project labor agreements, environmental permitting, living wage agreements, and corporate campaigns are largely indistinguishable from ordinary blackmail, extortion, and strong-arm work. So I think you may have already winked out my short answer to the question posed in the forum's invitation. No, I don't think unions are good for America. Indeed, I consider them to be one of the greatest evils in our economy, our society, and our nation. Unions, and particularly unions in the public sector, may well bring it all down around our heads. Before proceeding, however, I need to take on a diversion into something that's called economic rent. Pache Gordon Tullock, who was a professor at George Mason University and who first used the term, and I do dearly wish that he had chosen something different, something that wasn't so easily confused with apartments and borrowed tools. Uh, let us consider economic rent as the excess profit that comes from monopoly power. Every business longs to have some area of local monopoly, to have a patent, a good idea, a product that people will line up and pay extra for, whether it's an iPad or the latest thing in bionic ear mite detectors, or just a way to make the same old thing better or cheaper and sell it for as much as you were selling it before. It may be called by its kinder and gentler name of, excuse me, of competitive advantage, but it's the same thing. It's, the, it's a local monopoly. Quick example. Consider the lowly Vuvuzuela, a plastic tube made from a few pennies worth of some plastic derived from a puff of natural gas. But it's also a product that can be sold in the thousands to South African footballers for 50 or 100 times the cost of manufacture simply because it exists where it's wanted and it's wanted by every footballer in the universe, apparently. From the sound of the World Cup matches, there is no question that Vuvuzelas created vast economic rents for the people who invented the darn things, the manufacturers who risked producing them, the venture capitalists who venture capitalized them, and maybe even the bribed officials who allowed them to be blown to the games. <laughs> These are the entrepreneurial folk who created the tsunami of economic rents and who therefore earned the right to get them. Ah, but gee willikers. How about the working stiffs of Vuvuzela land? Say that one fast ten times. The guys and gals who man the machinery that molds them, who trim their little sprues, who pack them into boxes, who do the invoicing and the accounting, who carry them across the docks, etc. Some or all of their capitalist bosses uh, may have gotten suddenly rich. But what's in it for these folks beyond their lousy, low-paid jobs? Well, for one thing, they're lousy, low-paid jobs, jobs that they didn't have before 
and that they get to keep so long as the fad holds up and they perform the tasks required of them by their capitalist employers. Sorry, but these folks have no consequential claim to any of the economic rent, any more than the landlord or the university professor who encouraged the budding capitalists to think outside the box. Aha, you say. But what if the factory workers become so envious of their bosses that they band together, threatening to withhold their labor and prevent any other working stiffs from replacing them, promising to sabotage the machinery and hold up shipments, or to make educational visits to the boss's family's house in the suburbs if they don't get a bigger piece of the pie? In other words, what if they form a union? Then the capitalists faced with the alternative of acrimonious contention and the possibility of loss of all economic rents for anyone may agree to give up a portion of their own economic rents, even if undeserved. They may go along to get along. Now, I don't want to put too much of a burden on this silly example, but it does represent the essence of unionism and collective bargaining. The key point is this. Unions exist for the exclusive purpose of seizing for themselves and their members a larger piece of the economic pie than they could achieve or sustain in a free labor market. Another thing about economic rent. Although it may be variable over time and circumstance, within any particular unit, economic rent is a zero-sum game. If more of it goes to labor, less is available for management or capital or for saving the whales or whatever. There are no other non-criminal organizations so boldly oriented towards self-fulfillment as labor unions. It may be impolitic to say so, but plundering the system for economic rents is what unions do, and it is all that unions do. Here's a 10-second history of the labor movement. Unions struggled. They got adopted by the progressives. They were co-opted and pumped up by the New Deal. They grew like crazy through the 1950s, and then over half of the employees, and in some industries like construction or seafaring or coal mining, maybe in the high 60s percent, were unionized by the late 50s. Thereafter, however, something happened that caused the expansion to cease and to reverse, so that today unions in the private sector are down to less than 10 percent of the workforce, even less of a percentage than uh, was there before all this government boosting started. Why? Well, it wasn't the hobgoblin of the Taft-Hartley Act. Now, there's really not much to the Taft-Hartley Act. What really happened is that during and after World War II, with all that help from sympathetic legislation, compliant government agencies, and academics supporting their cause, unions became so successful at soaking up the economic rents from the private productive system that the system just plain ran out. And in some cases, it even ran out of the possibility of raising more. Unions had leveled the playing field among competitors, for example, in the automobile industry, by unionizing all of the major players, driving up all of their costs in lockstep. And they kept non-union competitors out, and they prevented employers from modernizing or installing labor-saving devices. They succeeded magnificently. But they couldn't impose the same burdens on foreign competitors, on Toyota or Fuji. So despite protectionist tariffs and a huge head start over worldwide competitors, U.S. companies like Bethlehem Steel and American Motors 
even some whole industries like coal or railroads or steel making or maritime or garment working fell into decline because of their union's excesses and going along to get along. And in their decline, they took their unions down with them. Unions became victims of their own success. And if you can't tell why, just read one of those 1,800-page master contracts that the UAW has with the automobile makers in Detroit. You'll find plenty of reasons why you know, the companies went under. But wait. Over the past few years, we're told that union membership as a proportion of the uh, employed workforce has actually grown. How can that be? It has happened because unions discovered the ultimate honeypot in public employment starting in the early 1960s when JFK first allowed them access to organizing public employees. I'm personally convinced that without this new market, unions would now be no more of a power in the economy than Kiwanis clubs or Masonic lodges. But unions got into public employment, even though there was no need for them to protect the tender sensibilities of public servants, and they thrived. 37% of all public employees are now unionized, and public employees have become the actual majority of all active union members. Public employees may have already had civil service regulations, elaborate seniority rules for advancement, essentially lifelong job tenure, superior even extra special fringe benefits, more vacation time than most, superb working conditions, etc., all given in exchange for what were supposed to be somewhat anemic wages but unions got them more. Public employees now earn salaries that average about 30% of above those of private workers, and their defined benefits are about 70% more. What unions have been tapping into are what I call, for want of a better term, public rents. And they are highly effective public rent seekers. Here are two examples. As of now, there are about 3,000 retired teachers in Orange County, California alone, some of them still in their 50s, who collect $100,000 or more per year in retirement benefits that will continue, adjusted for inflation, for the entirety of their natural lives and the lives of their spouses. In Ohio, there are 15,857 faculty and staff members who receive a total of $741 million in pension benefits per year, who are also still working for the system in full-time jobs, frequently the same jobs they retired from. A public rent-seeking has none of the limitations that eventually brought down economic rent-seeking in the private workforce. Public rent-seeking is much, much worse for three reasons. First, there's little resistance to union demands in the public sector. Unlike in the private sector, there's no bottom line to maintain, no competing claims from capital or management, there are no worries about cheaper competition or competing demands from other sectors. And don't forget that a supervisor's pay typically moves in lockstep ahead of the employees. The more the supervisor gives to the employees in, in uh, new contract benefits and whatever, the more he gets for himself. Second, there's a symbiotic relationship between unions and government officials and lawmakers. Labor's friends in government vote for initiatives that enable more union rent sharing 
And in exchange, they get Labor's friendship and votes and campaign contributions and the political machinery working on their own political behalf. Third and most important, unlike economic rents, political rents are not a zero-sum game. By buying in, unions have bought government's unique ability to assign to itself more economic rents through taxation, inflation, or deficit spending. So the size of the union's rent-sharing pie is almost infinitely expandable. Political rent-sharing is relatively new, but already government pension systems are underfunded by some $3.2 trillion, a future obligation that amounts to $27,000 for every household in the United States, and these are for benefits that are already promised. Right now, right now Illinois is out there actually issuing bonds, $3.5 billion of them, just to meet this year's mandatory annual contributions to workers' retirement programs, programs whose total unfunded liabilities exceed $85 billion. This year, California shifted $5.5 billion out of its 2010 budgets for transit systems, state public universities, parks, and infrastructure maintenance to pay for this year's pension and health care obligations. Next year, they'll have to do it again, even harder, and the year after that, and the one after that because this is not a one-time affair. California's total unfunded pension liabilities already exceed $500 billion. Projecting the current growth rate trend, admittedly this is a fatuous exercise, but if you project the trend that's, that's already established, you will find that California will owe more money than, the entire, than is in the entire U.S. Treasury to its public pensioners by the year 2075. There have been a few little fingers in the dike this year, but demands that union members contribute even a little bit more to their own pensions can bring lawsuits and threats to shut down libraries and parks and to stop policing the streets. There's no natural end to this. What's to be done? Do I have any particulars for you to work on? No. Look, I've spent most of my adult life pushing reform of an easy problem, the mess that's the Davis-Bacon Act, blisteringly outmoded, demonstrably idiotic in application. But I've made only tiny progress, a couple of meaningless modifications to it during years of Republican administration and Congresses. Undoing public rent-seeking by unions is a much bigger problem, and it will take a concerted effort by all of us interested in saving the future. The one thing we know for sure is that it will not happen with Democrats in power. From 1989 to 2010, the NEA and the AFT alone spread $58 million of political cash around. In the case of the former, 92% of it went to Democrats, the latter, 98%. So pay attention to what Mr. Fund and others like him are telling you. We must uh, reverse the Democrats' 2008 slogan. What we need is change and hope. Thank you for your attention. Thanks very much, uh, and thanks for Cato uh, having me here. Uh, I'm going to talk a bit about, and in some detail, about uh, what Armand just called the political machinery of unions. I won't make any great distinctions between public and private unions, because some of the material I'll be talking about will be about both. 
Uh, I do all of this with an intent of trying to give you an assessment of where uh, unions are in the political spectrum and the kind of resources they have for political activities, uh, the results of those political resources being used, and uh, maybe in, at the end of the day an assessment of what we can expect and what we might think about the future of the politics of labor unions. Let's begin with uh, uh, people and the numbers. Um, in politics, numbers count, votes count. I'll get to specifically to votes. But in general, if you're a larger part of the uh, economy, you have a, a more important role, you count more in politics, and you can expect more uh, favorable outcomes in politics for your, uh, for your concerns. Uh, and their unions, uh, particularly private unions, are in decline. Uh, that's very clear. It's what was said before. In the late 1940s, one-third of the workforce in the United States was unionized uh, in 2009. Something less than 13 percent is unionized, and about half of those uh, are in the private sector. So there's been a, a giant decline uh, in sheer numbers. Some people say uh, that this, you know, one po uh, possibility of hope for unions is that there's a differentiation among states. Uh, some states are more unionized than others. The difficulty with that argument is that um, the only states that are really among the fastest growing states in the country that are unionized are the, the three along the Pacific Coast, California, Oregon, and Washington. And among those, only Washington is in the top ten fastest growing states. So the states that are actually growing, gaining population, uh, and uh, exhibiting economic strength are uh, states that are not unionized and uh, have had generally low rates of unionization in the 5 to 8 percent range. So the future, uh, if trends continue, is not with unionization, particularly in the private uh, realm, but rather it seems to be going away from the states where uh, unionization, and this is a long-term trend. So that's problematic from the point of view of the unions. Um, let me look also, I thought I would also look at public opinion about unions. In politics, public opinion matters. Uh, the, po the political system doesn't perfectly reflect or follow public opinion, although some people would tell you uh, that have studied it in general ways that the public, uh, all the uh, parts of the institutions of the United States do follow public opinion. So uh, some sense of where unions stand in terms of um, with the public matters a great deal. And I have to say there what I can, my general impression is and what I found is that it's a mixed bag as it is for many institutions, but it's certainly not true that unions are a highly admired institution or one that can count on widespread support uh, in the public. Let me, let me go into the details. First, the strengths they have. Um, Gallup has found in recent years that uh, about, there's about a split about whether people when asked whether, just baldly, whether they approve of labor unions, 48% uh, say yes and 45% do not approve. Uh, there's also been a question in recent years about who do you side with in labor disputes recently. And in that uh, question, uh, labor unions got a 52% positive result on this one question. But that's about it. That's what I could find in the public opinion archives that was uh, uh, positive for unions. There's a great deal of other things that I think would be for the leaders and members of uh, unions troubling. Um, 
opinion has long been mixed, uh, both in the 1990s and in the current decade, about the performance of unions. About one-third of the public approves of the performance of unions, ranks it as excellent or good, but a plurality does not approve. One of the big problems that unions have is that public opinion suggests that Americans are mistrustful of the people who run them. Uh, according to Harris polls in the past, about 37% of Americans reported that they trusted union leaders to tell the truth. It's a pretty fundamental issue. Uh, later, a later poll suggested that that number had slipped to 30%. So you've got a majority, essentially, who's not uh, essentially trusting uh, leaders of pub public unions. Um, and perhaps even more important in terms of leadership and politics, uh, a recent poll in April of this year found that 53% of Americans have only a little or, quote, almost no confidence in labor leaders to recommend the right thing for the economy. So there's a, a great a majority that don't have confidence uh, in their, in a sense, in their recommendations for economic policy, which, of course, would be their core agenda. Uh, 48% of Americans uh, believe that unions will be weaker in the future, which is this, uh, that it will tend to have a, a kind of process of self-fulfillment. Uh, everybody else, people who believe they'll be about the same or, or stronger, uh, so it means about twice as many people in, in America believe that unions will be re weaker rather than stronger in the future, and that, again, that's going to affect uh, both uh, leaders and also public officials and their expectations about where unions stand in, in the entire political system. Uh, but I think in one way I ran across a series of questions which I think is really indicative of a problem for labor unions. Uh, the series of questions was asked by Gallup, uh, and they really go to the question of what do you think of labor unions' sort of normative position in the political system. The questions are, uh, to the, for example, do you think labor unions mostly help or hurt a series of groups? For example, do you think labor unions mostly help or mostly hurt workers who are members of unions? Well, 65% of Americans said that they thought that labor unions mostly help workers who are members of, of unions. Makes sense in, in some respects, even if you think of a, a labor union as a cartel, that would follow from that. Um, but when you ask, do labor unions mostly help or hurt the U.S. economy in general, you find that 51% report that they think it mostly hurts the U.S. economy, labor unions hurt the economy. Uh, what about workers who are not members of union, mostly help or mostly hurt? 61% uh, of those polls said that they thought that lab labor unions mostly hurt member uh, workers who were not members of unions. Um, and finally, uh, do you th uh, also labor union do labor unions help or hurt uh, companies uh, where workers are unionized? There, there's a more of a division, but a plurality of 46% said they thought that uh, labor unions mostly hurt the companies that were unionized. Uh, so in that sense, you get this picture of which unions, uh, the only clear uh, result that's positive, for in a sense, for unions, is that it, people do believe, a majority strongly believe, that it helps the members of the unions, but that everybody else 
there's either a majority or close to a majority that thinks they're hurt, that the labor unions hurt uh, other parts, including the U.S. economy in general. This is not a strong position in public opinion from which to uh, work in politics. Um, and then you see other manifestations of th these problems, I think, uh, in other questions. For example, during the problems with uh, the, the auto companies, the U.S. auto companies, uh, in beginning in late 2008 and down to this day, questions were asked about whether labor unions uh, the public thought or respondent thought that labor unions bore some blame or a great deal of blame or no blame at all for the problems the, the auto companies were having. And uh, uh, over a third of Americans thought uh, unions at, at the auto companies bore a great deal of blame. And three out of four Americans thought that uh, the unions bore either a great deal of blame or some blame for the problems. So again, this is not a position in which... Uh, uh, you know, people think that they're blameless or a victim or that they have uh, is a strong position for the politics that come out of these kinds of situations. Uh, so the public opinion is mixed in some respects. There's a few sort of generalized support, but down to specifics, it's very problematic, I think. The unions are not an admired institution. They are a mixed institution. They're not disliked as much as some, for example, Congress. But they... <laughs> God help them if they were disliked that much. But the, uh, it really, it's a bit of a mixed bag. And I think the question about what do you think, the, the sense in public opinion is that labor unions don't represent members, don't represent anything beyond their members. They do that, but they don't. And that's problematic for reaching out when you're 13% uh, of the workforce. You've got to form coalitions. And the coalitions are not really grounded very well in uh, public opinion. Now to campaign finance. Uh, my, my message on unions would be in politics is they punch well above their weight. One of the reasons is they're uh, very capable of raising uh, campaign dollars. And not just campaign contributions, but beyond that. They're effective, uh, fairly effective uh, electoral machines. In 2004, unions contributed $160 million in uh, very, both through normal and sort of uh, external, um, it was all legal, but uh, to the Kerry campaign. So $160 million, you're talking about a campaign uh, to keep it in perspective that's uh, probably in the 5 to $6 billion range. Uh, in 2008, unions spent $74.5 million in campaign contributions through PACs primarily. Uh, and uh, 68 million of that went to the Democratic Party through PACs. But the spending, that, that doesn't give you, contributions alone doesn't give you a good sense of the uh, campaign finance position of um, unions. Uh, for example, I can look at specific ones. Uh, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees spent $67 million uh, on uh, political activities alone, this, this one union in 2008, the Service Employees International Union uh, spent uh, $85 million in the 2008 campaign. And they, by the way, plan to spend $44 million this year in 2010 uh, on um, the, a midterm election, which is a really large number for a midterm election. 
And they have said that it is, in fact, an incumbent protection program, which is not usually something that you, you say out loud. There's a lot of incumbent protection that goes on. What they mean by that is they intend to use that $44 million to protect the Democratic majority for reasons our man mentioned and I will add to. Uh, the AFSCME, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, plans to spend another $50 million also on the 2000 campaign. This goes to some of the things Armand Mann said about public employee unions. Uh, unions are able, in contrast to business, they have a much easier time raising money because part of the union dues, and it's a an un- un- difficult-to-determine part, at least as a public matter, uh, is comes to them automatically. Uh, companies have to have a select group of people they can raise money from, and they have to raise it. Or as one a friend of mine says, who, who raises money for corporations, when people see me coming down the hall, they duck into their offices, and that's the problem cor- businesses face. They actually have to convince people, their managers and their families, to give them money. Now on the votes, it says you might expect. In 2008, uh, 21% of the electorate were union members, and 59% of them voted for Obama. But that was a worse performance than John Kerry got. Uh, In 2004, one quarter of the electorate was uh, union, and two out of three voted for Kerry. 70% of them voted for Democrats in the House that year. Uh, The unions... uh, Now, the other thing you have to say, that's also in a general decline. In 1976, when Jimmy Carter was first elected, um, 29% of the electorate was uh, union, and about a little over 60% voted for him. So the unions, uh, union members, have contracted as a member, as an as a proportion of the uh, entire workforce, but they've done better. They haven't contracted as much as a proportion of the electorate. So if the, in other words. Um, the contraction in the electorate, uh, in the workforce on the union side from 76 to 2009 has been substantial. But if the, you had the same contraction in the percentage uh, in the electorate, uh, in 2008, Barack Obama would have been elected, probably still, but only about 16% of the uh, electorate would have been union members. In fact, as I mentioned to you, 21% was uh, were union members. And what that tells me is that unions have pumped up their political efforts, have developed their get-out-the-vote, because a great deal of the money that uh, they raise that's beyond uh, campaign contributions goes to get-out-the-vote efforts. And so they have sustained a voting presence that is larger, that has worked in a way against their decline in, in the larger economy and the workforce. Um, that is what I mean when I say they punch above their weight. They are in fairly substantial decline, but the decline in the electorate is not as great. But it is a decline of about 8 or 9% since Carter's days. Now, what are the effects on policy? 2003-2004 Congress, um, Democrats in the House and Senate voted uh, for the AFL-CIO agenda, for an example, 90% of the time. Um, and many of the more interestingly, during that same period, 90% of the Democrats in con- uh, the Democrats in Congress had voted for unions 90% of the time throughout their careers. So it wasn't just one conference. In fact, as you might expect, Democrats—it's not just that the Democratic Party 
seems to be in general. It's in fact the case that overwhelmingly they vote uh, for what unions want. Um, now, about Obama, I, I talked a little bit. The Obama administration, I think, reflects some of the issues here. Uh, you, uh, and going back to the Clinton administration, too, with a Democratic Congress, uh, unions want, didn't want NAFTA. They got NAFTA anyway after giving uh, tens of millions of dollars to the Clinton administration. With the Obama administration, there's been some mixed results. The biggest uh, uh, outcome, I think, that uh, reflects union power is the UAW and uh, the Chrysler settlement, where essentially uh, the UAW uh, uh, has come into ownership of a car company and investor. the whole issue of investors. and uh, the, It was a bankruptcy managed in a way that reflected uh, political power. On the other hand, there's uh, the rest of the agenda has had mixed results in some ways. Um, the uh, card check has not gone forward. That was their top priority. Uh, and they didn't get the public option in health care. And then when they lost the public option, they also sought to be exempt, essentially, from taxation of expensive uh, health care plans, which many union members have. And they got part of that. They got a delay in the uh, introduction of that tax, and they also got an um, increase in the threshold when the tax took effect. So that's a mixed story. You, clearly, unions are an important part of the Democratic coalition, but that doesn't mean they win, which is just, and the reason they don't win everything they want, I think, is because uh, they have problems with... Uh, it, you have to have coalitions. The, sure, the votes, the Democrats vote for them, but it's very difficult for them to get moderate Republican votes. The filibuster itself has a strong effect on in preventing them from getting from what they want. I th just to finish now with a couple of words about the future. The future is an unknown land, so I can talk about it without fear of contradiction, at least for now. And uh, I would say that it's, there's just no reason to think that private unions, anything we know, are going to be a returning strong part of the economy. The, this is a long-term decline. Uh, what does that mean for politics? They will continue to try to work against that trend by campaign finance, better use of organization, and so on and so forth. But I think it may be well, it might be the case that they've reached the outer limits of how much can be done there. The underlying problem they face in the private sector is that it's essentially the numbers are going away from them. And with it, that will also be votes. However, whatever, you're not, it's not going to get a 30 or 40 percent, 30 percent of the electorate. There's just not the, being union. There's just not the people there. The big issue, as Armand suggests, is the public sector unions uh, who are growing now, I think one of the problems they may face is that if you see unions as good for their members but for nobody else, if the, and if the government itself is, become, particularly at the state level, comes to be another word for union members, you've got the problem that you've got, in a sense, the civil society or the rest of the uh, society against the government, and the unions are, not, are more on the side of the government, right? So it's the society against the government in ways. And people now don't have a great deal of trust in government. They don't have a great deal of trust in the larger, a larger perspective. They see unions as self-interested. 
I think uh, the, uh, it's going to be hard uh, to carry on in that way as you go forward. The other thing is that would, of course, constrain public unions is that they're in the state and local areas. As long, if you had more federalism, you had more competition among states, that would matter because – and the other thing is states faced uh, budget constraints. That is, they are required uh, to have balanced budgets. At some point, they will uh, be constrained by budgets because – or the taxes will continue to go up. Now, if, and given what I said about uh, the variations in taxation – that will create incentives for uh, from some, and some states will have lower taxes because they have less unionization. Uh, the other thing I, I would keep in mind is the case of New York City, which in New York City went bankrupt in 1976. It had a similar situation that we see more broadly in America, that is strong public sector unionism. And the general reports about what happened with that bankruptcy and the Financial Control Board was, uh, to put it in a sentence, the unions got it. That is to say they suffered uh, striking losses during that period. Now, they may well be back by now, but a bankruptcy or severe fiscal crisis might be expected to constrain uh, what is essentially a, a narrow particularistic uh, uh, force here. Um, so in general... Private unions are in decline. We can expect them, I think, to continue to decline politically. Their skills, their money, and so on may be able to work beyond that. The real problem is the economy is against them. They, their uh, strength and their numbers were based on a, an industrial economy, and we live in a post-industrial economy. They can fight against that to some degree, and you'll see some of that in the uh, you know, public employees, government employees, unions. But in general, I think uh, this is a declining sector in politics. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I suspect that many of you are either readers or subscribers to the Wall Street Journal, so it's the least I can do to come and thank you for helping to pay my salary. I... Uh, my purpose here, to paraphrase Shakespeare's Mark Antony, is to discuss unions, not to bash them. And I come from a perspective and a family uh, that has some involvement in the union movement. My father was a union member most of his life. My brother, until he retired from the Tucson Police Department recently, was a union member his entire life. My sister has been a union member. When I first came to Washington... I interviewed then-chairman of the Appropriations Committee in the House, Jamie Witten, who told me, quote, all any citizen can reasonably ask for is the chance to get an advantage over his fellow men and women and get that codified into law. <laughs> and that's part of what our democracy is all about, uh, within constitutional guidelines as interpreted by the Supreme Court. But what you do not have the right to do is to create a system of privilege so great and so manifest that it threatens to take the rest of us down with you. That you do not have a right to do. I think right now we are in danger of creating a government employee class that is a privileged elite that turns the phrase public servants on its head and where you have rulers making steady gains at the expense of the ruled. The public policy ramifications of this are higher taxes, 
eroded public services, unsustainable levels of debt, and massive roadblocks to reforming even the poorest performing agencies and school systems. Now, don't get me wrong. I think there is a place for unions in America. But let me tell you the story of Marlboro, New Jersey, which is near where I live. Recently, as unemployment in Marlboro climbed over 10%, the biggest employer in the town went to its workforce and explained that it was out of money and it needed to have some shared sacrifices. And it explained that it was cutting essential government services, maintenance was way down, uh, park programs were going to be trimmed, and they were going to ask the employees to pitch in. The employees representative said, not in your life. And they stalled. After six months, the employer gave in, namely the town government, granted a 23% wage increase over five years, and dramatically expanded the health benefits for the town employees. This is a strange result, because I suspect no matter how powerful a private sector union would have been, it wouldn't have been able to do that. Public sector unions are different than private sector unions. And let me call some witnesses forth to explain that. Franklin Roosevelt is viewed as a great champion of the working man and of unions. He signed the Wagner Act, which gave us modern collective bargaining in private industry. But when it came to public employees, Roosevelt drew a bright line. In 1937, Roosevelt penned a letter to the head of the National Federation of Federal Employees arguing that when the question of pay hours and grievances were involved, civil servants ought to be no different from those in the private sector. But collective bargaining, FDR wrote, was fundamentally different. It should not, cannot, and must not be translated, transplanted into the public service, unquote. He particularly disapproved of, quote, militant tactics, unquote, that were being used by some public employee unions, and reminded Luther Stewart, president of the Federal Employee Union, that his own association's charter banned all strikes. That was the traditional liberal position. Frank Lausch, the former Democratic governor and later United States senator from Ohio, explained why he supported private sector unions. Public sector unions were different. In private sector union negotiations, there is a conflict, an inherent conflict, ultimately, between the interests of labor and the interests of management. In public sector unions, it's much more blurred because often the public sector unions are able to create a political situation, as outlined by John Samples, in which they effectively have undue influence over management. In other words, when they negotiate, they're negotiating against an open door. School boards. The school board where I grew up in, there were five members on it. Two of them were spouses of teachers in the district. One of them was an administrator in another school district. Three of the five school board members were basically on the other team. So who loses in that? Well, the taxpayers, and they will lose consistently. So I think the imbalance that was often seen between labor and management that led to the creation of private sector unions was certainly real enough in our history may to some extent still be today. But the imbalance between the bargaining power of public sector unions and public sector managers is at least as great 
and can have at least as dire a consequence. Willie Brown. I used to be a staffer in the California State Legislature. Willie Brown was the speaker. Uh, no man wielded more power in the California State Legislature. He retired after having been termed out of office by term limits. He became mayor of San Francisco for two terms. Uh, then he became a powerful member of CalPERS, which is the public employee pension fund program in California, one of the largest in the world. Now he's retired. And the definition of a statesman is someone who's retired and can finally tell us the truth. Um, this is Willie Brown, who in the San Francisco Chronicle in January railed against the, quote, out-of-control civil service, unquote. Quote, the deal used to be that civil servants were paid less than private sector workers in exchange for understanding they had job security for life. But we politicians, pushed by our friends in labor, gradually expanded pay and benefits while keeping the job protections and layering in incredibly generous retirement packages. This is politically unpopular and potentially even career suicide. But at some point, someone is going to have to get honest about the fact. I've interviewed Willie. Uh, I used to have many disagreements with him. I have fewer now. Uh, I asked him, what was your epiphany? And he said, well, my job as assembly speaker was to cash checks sent to me by taxpayers. And then I would distribute the benefits. When I became mayor of San Francisco, my job was to sign checks. And gradually as I became mayor, I discovered I had less and less power as mayor. Why? Because more and more of the budget was being eaten up by public employee contracts that couldn't be changed or altered and retirement programs to public employees that couldn't be altered. And eventually I had very little discretion. And eventually the parts of city government that I wanted to improve, homeless programs, parks and recreation, infrastructure, eventually I didn't have any money. That, he said, is unconscionable because you cannot be in favor of progressive government if the results of your public sector union movement are that there's no money left for progressive ends. California used to spend 40% of its state budget on infrastructure. It now spends 2%. We have a water crisis in California. We have a road crisis in California. We have a transit crisis in California. We have no money to build high-speed rail or anything anyone wants to build. We have a public safety crisis in California, my home state. You think Katrina was bad with those slipshod levees? In the Sacramento Delta, near where I grew up, there are crumbling, there's crumbling infrastructure, which the next earthquake, if it took down, would mean a ton of salt water would enter into the Sacramento Delta, and Southern California would be deprived of its fresh water, because that's where it gets its fresh water, Sacramento Delta. This is a potential catastrophe. You think Katrina was bad. Just wait till the next earthquake in California. Vallejo, near where I grew up. Vallejo is a city that filed Chapter 9 bankruptcy in 2008. It discovered that 90% of its city's budgets was being eaten up by public employee contracts, either to existing or to former employees. Vallejo started to squeeze under Chapter 9. Eventually, it cut its employee costs by over a quarter. But the fallout has been brutal. Employee health care benefits have been decimated. Holders of the city's municipal bonds are unlikely to get their money back. Violent crime rates have shot up dramatically because the number of police officers have been reduced from 158 to 104. There's only one thing that Vallejo has not been able to touch. 
the $84 million it has in future pension obligations to its former employees, which is the very budget item that tipped it into Chapter 9 bankruptcy. This is not progressive government. This is insanity. Now, Al Shanker, the former and late head of the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, used to come to the Wall Street Journal every year for an editorial board meeting. He was very frank. Uh, he was an honest, decent union leader of integrity. He stood, up for, he stood up for his members, but he understood broader implications of public policy. He understood that while he had to lead a union, he also had some responsibility for broader society and public policy. Towards the end of his life, he agreed that if you could take the 10% of the worst performing students in public schools and give them vouchers, he would not oppose that because they had to have an exit. And you only turn 18 once. You can't re-educate people once they've gone through school and not learned anything. And he said he'd be willing to do that. And I said, well, why won't you go do more? Why not 20, the bottom 20%, the bottom 30%? And he said, with almost a touch of sadness, he said, you have to understand what my role is. I am the head of a public employee union. My job is to represent my members. I will represent the interests of children the day they become members of my union. Now, that's brutal, but it's accurate. His job was to represent the, mem the members of his union. To paraphrase, whenever you hear someone say in public life, it's for the children, I think they're really saying it's for the adults in the system. All you have to do is look at the amount of money going into administration of public schools versus the classroom, and that will be demonstration enough. My last witness is David Crane, who is the pension advisor to Governor Schwarzenegger. And he warns that if nothing is done, we are going to see a collapse of state finances all over this country. In fact, I'm sorry, I'm not Mr. Crane, it's Mr. Cummins. Let me find this here. John Cummins, the executive vice president in charge of the $27 billion fixed income fund, PIMCO, which underwrites a lot of the municipal bond work in this country. Quote, we want to stay as far away as possible from states with bonds that depend on the politicians and general funds of financially shaky states and smaller issuers unless the price is right. I will never forget asking California Treasurer Bill Lockyer, one of the greatest bond salesmen ever, about the state's pension situation, and all you get back is a thousand-yard stare and a quick change of subject. That is concerning at the least. We are already seeing Illinois fill out IOUs. We are already seeing in California, where it looks as if there may be no budget passed this year, it may be dumped into the lap of the next governor, either Jerry Brown or Meg Whitman, because there's $20 billion in deficits. $20 billion. So to go back to the beginning, it is understandable, as Chairman Witten of the Appropriations Committee said, for someone to seek an advantage over their fellow men and women. But it is not appropriate to take down the whole system at the expense of everyone else. Obviously, we want our public servants compensated. Obviously, we want retirees to have a good and decent future. But 
other considerations now apply. And as Willie Brown reminds us, everything in life can be a good thing. But it's also true that sometimes there can be too much of it. And that's what we have come in the case of public employee labor unions, their demands, and the inability of managers and politicians who supposedly represent us to hold up their end of the bargain and have a fair and balanced negotiation between labor and management. Thank you. Thanks a lot, John, and all, all our speakers. That was, uh, that was great. Uh, I think we've got some time for uh, some, some questions uh, and answers. And so uh, please uh, raise your hand and wait for the microphone to, uh, to come around, and I'll try to get to, uh, to everyone, uh, maybe up front there. Uh, I noticed there was no distinction made between the uh, state and local uh, unions and the federal unions, and uh, I wondered if everything you were saying about the state unions was also applicable to the federal unions, particularly in light of the fact that the federal unions don't have the right to strike. I mean, they, and uh, that seems to me, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that seems to me the why, why the state unions have gotten such incredible uh, compensation packages. And the, the, along with that, I wanted to ask you, uh, is, is that true that the, uh, the states that have um, the right to strike are the ones that, that, got the, uh, that have the higher compensation packages? Because I, uh, as I understand it, not all states state employees have the right to strike. I, I'm going to pass to Armand in a sec, but I have a handout out front that discusses the differences in unionization across the states. The, the right to strike is uh, actually fairly rare, I think, in the, in the public sector. The differences across the states are caused by two uh, factors, the collective bargaining uh, rights. Some states like Virginia have no collective bargaining in the public sector at all, also North Carolina. Uh, other states mandate collective bargaining for all state and local workers. And the other difference is, is uh, the so-called agency shop rules. Are uh, government employees allowed uh, to uh, – are they forced to pay uh, dues to the union, whether or not they're, they're members of the union? And those are the two differences that drive these huge differences in unionizations uh, uh, in, the, in the states. And maybe Armand has a, a comment. Well, the fundamental question is uh, whether the, the right to strike or the threat of strike is something that influences uh, relations in public employment. The answer is no. Uh, at one time, it may have been. But unions do not uh, enforce their demands uh, against their government employers by threatening to strike, typically. Uh, they enforce their demands by demanding. And as I say, the entire symbiotic system is designed to fulfill their demands. They don't need to strike. Oh, so it's it's really not much of a factor. Is it also true, Armand, that I mean, in a lot of states that they don't allow public sector employees to strike, but they have mandatory uh, arbitration? So basically, uh, you know, the, the the union members can push and push and push for higher wages and benefits, and really the the incentive for the the government managers is kind of just to, uh, to to give in, and then they they always get some of what they want in these arbitrations. That's that's why in the uh, so-called card check. Uh, uh, law, the uh, what do they call it? Employee fair choice, whatever it is. Uh, uh, one of the really critical aspects of that that employers are very uh, sensitive to 
which the general public doesn't know a thing about, doesn't care about a bit, is forced arbitration. Well, you give me a forced arbitration situation, and by golly, I can come up with a demand that's, you know, wonderful that if I only get 10% of that demand, an arbitrator will always find truth somewhere in the middle. Uh, uh, it's just a, a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's just a wonderful thing. Uh, the, uh, uh, they, they, there is an alternative to that. Uh, there is so-called forced choice or last-offer arbitration, but it's almost never employed in uh, American arbitration uh, situations. Uh, yellow shirt down front? Yeah. federal uh, situation versus the states. My, my uh, inclination is to think that the federal gov government does not get the kind of compensation that, that some of these states do. Uh, you know, I, I think both the federal unions and the state local unions in the states that have them uh, are extremely uh, uh, good at uh, uh, pushing for higher wages and benefits. Federal wages and benefits are far higher than the wages and benefits at state local level. Uh, the state, state, my general sense, and, and I've done lots of uh, data on this. If you look on our website, state local workers, my, my sense is their wages are, are generally in line with with uh, similar jobs in the private sector. It's the benefits, as John was talking about, that are way out of line. Federally, in my view, both the wages and the benefits are way out of line compared to the private sector. Yellow shirt uh, down front. Thank you. Um, Mr. Fund, I remember I used to see Willie Brown walking around San Francisco when he was mayor. And... Um, he did quite well for himself, Ms. Mayor, and what have you. My question, I also I would certainly appreciate an article if someone would write about what the union bosses, public unions, state unions, are making, how much they're earning. And when I lived in Seattle, what Washington State tried to do was to have those people who had to join the unions make sure that their union dues did not go towards PAC money. But my question is, what do you see in the future with I'm talking about public unions like teachers, NEA, uh, teachers union, public unions, where people are losing their jobs, and unions, in order to get a city or state job, and I had to for a short time in Seattle, join the union. With people losing their jobs, with the current economy, with the the lack of jobs out there, teachers, whomever. Do you see that this will increase union membership because there is a mandate that you must join the union? Or do you see that there's some way change or something in the air that I need a job, so I have to join the union, and how can I make it so that my union dues are going for me and not the PACs and to the union bosses? Well, certainly this recession has shown that the private sector has shed 3 million jobs the public sector, almost none at all. In fact, I think that if you look at the stimulus package that was passed last year in Congress, if you actually look where the money went, since there were really very few shovel-ready projects available, most of the money in large chunks of the bill went to making sure that state and local governments would not have to lay off workers. It propped up state finances for a short period of time. Um, I think we are unlikely to see large stimulus packages in the near future. Uh, therefore, I think states are going to have to come to a decision point. Now, 
various unions, including the Service Employees International Union, have been very successful within the existing workforce in unionizing sectors that have not been unionized before. For example, home care workers in California and in Illinois. Or that was one of Governor Blagojevich's more infamous ploys uh, before he was caught up by his uh, intemperate telephone habits that were wiretapped by the federal prosecutors. Uh, but he managed to get the home health care workers in Illinois unionized, as were the health care workers in California. That brought in several hundred thousand new union members. Uh, it creates an enormous problem in adjusting government programs in times of stress, however, because these contracts are pretty much ironclad. It's not just the cost of the contract. It's the fact that there's no flexibility. There's a union rule book, uh, work schedules that cannot be adjusted, no matter how much stress there is. Um, my mother, for a time, was on the Medi-Cal program in California. She required some home health care work. Uh, but it was completely impossible for her to adjust the schedule of the worker who was assigned to her uh, because of the union rules. So the costs of this rigidity are not just in dollar terms. They're often in human terms. Uh, down front. Oh, either one. <laughs> Give them both. My name is uh, David Hartz. Uh, what do you think is the prospect of employee free choice or so-called card check passing? I know this is one of Obama's uh, high-priority items. I think maybe John would be the right one to uh, talk about that. But I don't you have know. a view, John, on the card check? I think that since card check is normally seen as being the reduction in the ability of people to have a secret ballot election for union representation polls very poorly. About 80 percent of people think that that's abominable. Uh, the unions quickly retreated to, I think, more realistic goals, namely binding arbitration, uh, namely that if companies can't come to an agreement, it would go to a federal arbitrator. Federal arbitrators tend to have a long record of uh, siding with unions, and that would have increased union positions um, indirectly. Uh, Senator Harkin, who's the chairmonster chairman of the uh, Senate Labor Committee, uh, Senator Harkin has said in the and there's a possible lame duck session where some smaller elements of card check could be brought in, and these are elements that are much less inflammatory than the union ba secret ballot election provision, and that would be what to watch for. Uh, I think card check, as we understand it in the popular sense, is dead. Uh, but elements of it that are almost as uh, consequential, including binding arbitration, are possible. Watch that lame duck session. Now the other question up front. So um, my name is Justin Wilson. We've, huh, we've seen unions become increasingly, and they always have been, but increasingly strategic in their ballot initiative process. The fact that more and more, you know, the fact that you can't repeal a forced labor state like in Colorado, um, I think is, it, it's bizarre that unions are able to actually continue to keep uh, right to work laws from existing. And I'm wondering your thoughts on how, in the case of, for instance, of Colorado, where the unions introduced four poison pill ballot initiatives in order to try to keep the, <laughs> the uh, right to work ballot initiative out of the state, and actually were able to get the I think State Chamber of Commerce to back their position as a result. How on earth 
we're going to be able to actually make some kind of progress. I know, obviously, uh, we've had, you know, there's small gains on Davis-Bacon and other things, but it seems that the more increasing, their increasing reliance on direct democracy poses even more problems. The unions are amazingly powerful financial institutions anymore. Last year, they took in roughly $16 billion worth of dues and other, uh, other funds. What do they have to spend that money on? It used to be in the old days, union dues were to support your strikers, to make sure that people could, uh, could get by during strikes and whatever. When's the last time we had a strike of any consequence in the United States? The only thing that that $16 billion is being used for is to influence government policy in favor of unions. Uh, there are hordes of union lawyers who are out there looking at ballot initiatives and blocking other people from doing uh, countervailing things and whatever. Uh, I don't know how to stop it. I don't have an idea in the world. This, this thing is, is like a railroad train. Uh, it's, it's on the tracks, and it's moving at full speed, and it's speeding up with the, the public side. And I don't have an f- idea in the world of how you go about stopping it, except that we all have to agree that it needs to be stopped first. That's the first thing that we have to do. We have to agree that this is something that needs to be stopped. After that, maybe we can figure out consequential ways of doing it. So I spent my whole life trying to do something about the stupid Davis-Bacon Act, and I've made almost no progress. It's really it's mashing your head against the wall, looking at things that are so blitheringly idiotic, and you can't get them stopped. Uh, you, uh, I'm not going to get into it. Both Johns. This John first. Yeah. Well, on ballot initiatives, it's worth keeping in mind that not every state has ballot initiative. Uh, maybe 22, 23 states have it. Um, it probably doesn't correlate real well, but somewhat with, um, that is, with western southern states. Uh, many of those states would be states that I was talking about where uh, support for unions and unionization is pretty weak. So when you have a ballot initiative, it's, you've still got to get 50% of the vote. It's true that turnout's small and that the unions would be highly focused and highly organized and able to spend money, uh, but they would still have to get to that in a context in which, uh, in many cases, the environment would be fairly hostile, the political environment. The other thing I, w- I would say is with ballot initiatives, it'll be hard for unions to get stuff done because it's always, particularly if uh, the business community is fairly well organized and funded, it's much hard. It's a lot easier. The general rule is to stop something than it is to get something done. So, uh, actually, when they try to do something that evokes opposition, they're going to have a, a much harder time with it. John, there's a quote often attributed to Churchill, which goes that government government will always do the right thing, but first it must exhaust all other possibilities. Um, we're getting close to that in some states. Uh, there's an old expression, hit the wall. Um, I'll be honest with you. As a Californian, I have been waiting for California to hit the wall for 30 years <laughs> because I knew that was the only way things were going to change. Uh, you talk to state legislators in California, the only way they're going to reform the public employee pension system in California is through the ballot initiative process because the legislature will not change it. Uh, they're too scared of the people who sent them there. There are signs of hope. Last month, June, three California cities voted 
on ballot initiatives. One was Vallejo, which I previously referenced in Chapter 9. The city of Vallejo has for four years now tried to use bankruptcy law to rewrite its public employee contracts. Uh, they've had 23 attempts at arbitration. They have lost 23 times. That's how much you, arbitrators are biased towards unions. So finally they took a ballot initiative, put it on the ballot. It passed with over 60% of the vote. This is a city that voted 76% for Barack Obama. Chula Vista, California, had an initiative that would, have, that would curb uh, the ability of public sector unions to demand uh, high wage scales for public projects. Uh, Chula Vista is a city that is over 50% Hispanic, voted 62% for Obama. It passed overwhelmingly, 58%. Attempts by the unions to defeat the city council members who were in favor of this measure failed miserably. Oceanside, California, which is in San Diego County, which also voted for Obama, 54%, passed a similar measure. I believe this will prol- these will proliferate all around the state. These are cities that routinely vote for Democratic candidates. And I think that there has been a sea change. Just remember, as the society starts to crumble around them, even union members are going to realize they too are members of society, and their interests are not necessarily identical to the interests of the union leadership, which has sometimes separate interests from that of their own membership, which won't surprise you. Uh, Union members are citizens too. Uh, Union members, as we know, routinely often vote against the dictates or the predilections of their union leaders or the recommendations of their PACs. So I think over time you're going to see, as we hit the wall, people making more choices, sometimes fundamental choices, and sometimes realizing, to use the old cliche, you can't kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. And we're in, the goose right now is suffering severe uh, tracheal pressure. Let's uh, go to the back, the young lady at the front of the back there. Um, my name is Claudia Farris. I'm with the Catalyst Institute for Applied Policy. I'm a progressive. My father was a labor organizer with the um, Electrical Workers Union back in the day when it was rough to be a labor organizer with any union. Um, but I, I feel the problems that you are highlighting here today. I would point out, though, that rapacious instincts are not limited to uh, unions, either leaders or members, and that unions were started for a reason. Um, And I would look for some guidance from you about what comfort we can have that those reasons no longer prevail. Um, That uh, Seymour Martin Lipset, a mentor of mine, late unfortunately, holds that we did not go for communism because of our ability to to create a social safety net. so I'm, I'm asking the panel to step outside of the system for a moment and look at all of the players, all of the agents in the system, and, and, and ask or tell us or comment on um, what has changed that, 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 that could give us that kind of comfort, that if, if, for example, unions were to back off from, I know you're talking about the ripoff dynamic of unions, um, but there is a real functionality that unions have served in our society. Is that 
no longer necessary. Have have holders of capital, entrepreneurs, and it's not just the entrepreneurial spirit that we're talking about here. Corporate managers and executive compensation are also a part of this problem. If you compare American auto industry with the Japanese auto industry, you have a huge all kinds of problems on all kinds of levels from from the the um the lifetime job um guarantees that the japanese workers have to the very low levels compared to the united states of corporate of uh, corporate compensation rates we and here we're just talking about unions and it's easy to poke you know um to challenge their their social responsibility or whatever so I think you get my point. I'd ask you to take to take a step out of the even out of the economy for a moment and look at the whole system and look at why unions um, were started in the first place, why people still in some instances well, cling to unions. Well, ma'am, as I said to you, I come from a union family and I was very careful in my remarks to dis- make distinct distinguish between private sector unions and public sector unions. Private sector unions have a history of about 150 years in this country. Until 1962, when John F. Kennedy signed that famous executive order, there were no public sector unions effectively in this country. This is a relatively recent phenomenon. I think we look to democracy. Uh, I think you can appreciate the value of democracy. Right now, and we certainly can argue about whether or not union representation elections are fair, and we can certainly argue about whether there's undue influence by employers or, or by unions. Sometimes there are abuses on both sides. But we do have union representation elections, and people choose to either join a union or not join a union. Assuming the elections are fair, I'm willing to leave that up to their choice. I, if you let me finish, I will respond to your question. Public sector unions also have a democratic outlet. If they feel that they are being mistreated by their employer, the city, the state, or the federal government, they can work to get people elected. And they have an advantage that many people in politics don't have. They have the right to extract dues from their members under threat of coercion. They have the right to take that money and spend almost all of it on politics if they wish. They don't have to put it into collective bargaining. They don't have to put it into strike funds. They can spend it all on politics. They can elect people who will make sure that they get a better shake in terms of their employment conditions and their wage and benefit packages with the state, city, or government. In both cases, I think there's a democratic answer. Now, we have seen democracy go in two different directions. The percentage of people in private sector unions has declined to 7%. Even if you assume some of those elections weren't fair, it wouldn't be a whole lot higher. So clearly people have made choices, and it's average workers that have made that choice because they can join a union. In the public sector, now we have a majority of public sector employees who are now part of a public sector union. And that has been a different process because I think the process, the inherent a balance between of power between management and labor has not existed in the public sector unions. So I agree with you unions were started for a reason. I think there were incredible abuses. I've studied them. But there is a difference, as Franklin Roosevelt reminded us, there is a difference between unionization in the private sector and in the public sector. And unless we recognize that, we're not going to be able to get to the nub of this problem. I'd make a brief comment that, I mean, there's a dozen states now, uh, Virginia, North Carolina, and others, that have no collective bargaining in, in the public sector. So Virginia, where I live, 
local local and state workers. Uh, they, there are no uh, mandatory or compulsory unions, but teacher uh, teacher groups and other groups, firemen, police can join voluntary associations, and and those voluntary associations uh, are still pretty effective in the public sort of debate, um, uh, which you see in Virginia. In Virginia. Is a well is a pretty well managed state, um, so you know it strikes me that you know there's a model there that we we should we can compare states like California to when we're discussing these uh, these issues. Uh, any other comments on that? Yeah. Uh, question. Yeah. My name is Li Yang. Uh, I heard that you are mentioning all the pension and whatever the portion in the budget that the labor union got, but I haven't heard the comparison of just the pension per labor or their benefit as compared to other sectors of the government budget. For instance, whether there's economic development is truly fair or the pay for the city manager is fair. Now, recently, there's an article for a small town. They say a city manager's got almost three quarters of a million. And the assistant manager also got about a half a million. And then the lower is to get the three, 300 or 400 thousand dollars. So and then I think you can see the uh, what I call it is a false excuse the economic development but private public sector uh, partnership because what they are doing is uh, get almost uh, like in a uh, hundred million dollars to the developers and uh, at the final product is all uh, private. There's not a fifty fifty and then it's not even a hundred percent to the government sectors. You know, when I think about public-private partnership, you are going to share by percentage of input whoever put the resources in. And something of this sort, like like the city, they have a lot of paper road, and they even get the maintenance expenditures when the law or property has been given to the private sectors. So we haven't discussed this kind of comparison about a budget uh, item by item. So we cannot blame on the labor union or their movement take all a big chunk out of the government budget when they don't discuss all the other abuse and the waste. And uh, they are the one take all all the benefit from laborers because labor for with a low wage. And they had to pay even a, a, a lot higher for, let's say, the parking fee or traffic ticket or any uh, law enforcement force arrest and, and a bond and a hostage and hostage and ransom, that kind of style. So we if, cannot blame them. I mean, your, your question seems My to question point to the is issue uh, of we need some comparisons of who get the real uh, fraudulent kind of benefits. You, the labor I mean, they didn't get that kind of benefit because the labor probably get a very low wages okay. and pension probably. Okay, so you're you, you seem to be. I mean, you're indicating that there's you know there's a lot of corruption in government, and then corporations or businesses that do business with government can be corrupt and overpaid and the like too. And I you know I would agree with you. The sort of the the uh, the issue of compensation is very important in the public sector though uh, because uh, compensate there's 20 million state and local workers uh, that cost American taxpayers over two trillion a year and about one trillion or about half of all state local spending uh, is the compensation of public sector workers so 
you know, that's sort of the issue we're discussing today, and it's, you know, it's an important issue because it's such a big, there's such a big, uh, it's a big piece of economic pie, a trillion dollars. Uh, I agree with you, though, that there's lots of other waste and, waste and corruption in the state and local government. Uh, pardon me? Well, I mean... <laughs> lobbyists aren't paid from the public treasury. A question down front? Samar Chatterjee from Safe Foundation. Um, one of the interesting aspects of today's presentation is all three speakers really were bashing the union without giving us any concrete proposals of how it can be improved, either abolish the unions or, or go some halfway or do whatever it is. It seems to me that if the union, I mean, just simple logic would indicate that for employees to negotiate with big employers, particularly there with lawyers and all kinds of uh, resources, uh, it, uh, big employers are like the Shakespeare Shylock, you know, they're out to suck blood out of the labor. Now, you need some kind of an organization like a union or similar like association you talked about. That was an interesting su a suggestion which came out of questions and answers. We need some kind of, because it seems like the union, if it has caused problems in America, it is, I think, uh, corruption of America's democracy. To me, it appears to be. So we need to figure out a way and therefore, we need concrete suggestions from all the three speakers rather than just bashing the unions. Thank you. Uh, I think that will probably be the last question because it's after 1.30, but any... Uh... Well, uh, I would uh, say that as I tried to make the point in my uh, speech is that I think union part of the problems unions have is not just the decline in numbers, but the decline of people's understanding that they stand for anything other than the members of the unions. I mean, unions are essentially just another interest group in American politics, and it's well understood broadly that as an interest group, they're there primarily for the interest of their members. Now, they claim, like every other interest group, to stand for some broader uh, labor concerns or whatever, but that's not widely believed, as I quoted the evidence to you on that. And, uh, you know, when they do the things like the negotiations over the taxes on uh, expensive health plans don't lend to credibility to the claim that uh, unions are some broader uh, interest or represent some broader interest. I think until they can turn the corner on that, uh, they're, they're going to continue to have uh, problems. Any final thoughts? Okay. Thanks a lot for coming. <laughs>